This is All India Radio. In the program Spotlight, we now bring you a discussion on promotion and protection of human rights. The participants are J. Sai Deepak, legal expert, and Satya Prakash, journalist. The world is celebrating human rights today. President Ramnath Kobind, at a function organized by the National Human Rights Commission, today flagged the recent incidents of violence against women in the country, and he said the heinous crimes force people to think whether the society has lived up to the cherished universal vision of equal rights for all. Mr. Saidipak, this entire idea of human rights, the concept of human rights, and the universal declaration of human rights and the various provisions in the Indian constitution and thereafter creating various institutions for protection and promotion of human rights including the National Human Rights Commission. What is this idea of human rights and how is it important for a particular country, India, and as a civilized society? I think even the timelines themselves bear out, which is very important for us to note, is that the United Nations Declaration on Human Rights came into existence only in 1948, whereas our constitution had started discussing Part 3 well before that. Part 3 means fundamental rights. Fundamental rights. And from December 1946, when the Constituent Assembly effectively started functioning, it had already started discussing the concept of human rights. So one is our conception of human rights is independent of what the United Nations has said in 1948. We're talking about Indian Constitution. Indian Constitution. And that I think is a huge thing that we fail to note unfailingly because the understanding generally is that this is a foreign import. Second, India's conception of human rights is also heavily informed by its own indigenous jurisprudence and legal thought and its own experience with colonial imperialism and imperialisms of other forms. So how is it that we have treated human rights? I think if you take a look at part 3 and if you take a look at all the provisions starting from 14 to 31 or even 31A, the discussion largely revolves around the treatment of human dignity at the end of it or at the heart of it is the core and the sum and substance of our understanding of human rights that there is an innate and intrinsic value that every human being enjoys as a consequence of being human. Therefore, there is a certain level of dignity which is associated with sentient beings in general that anyone who can think and who is in a position to exercise their mental faculties is entitled to a certain amount of respect. So that is where we draw our support from. And this is to some extent consistent with the Indic school of thought on law and jurisprudence, but its limitations are slowly beginning to come up as well. But the one thing remains that the fundamental concept behind this entire human rights is that everybody is entitled to respect. There is an innate dignity associated with human beings. Coming back to what President Ramnath Kobind has said, he has uh, talked about the recent incidents of violence against women. We all know what happened in Hyderabad. We all know what happened in Unnao. Such news uh, has been coming from here and there. And uh, the entire environment becomes pessimistic because people think that we are all about violence against women, violence against children. And when we try to counter that, then encounter happens, which has been questioned. This idea and the way we are trying to implement it, what are the gaps which can be bridged? In fact, according to me, it's a serious problem with so many layers. For instance, according to me, whenever the population itself goes beyond a point, the value of human life comes down. Because the general attitude is that there is a certain normalization of reactions to death in general and any form of death. 
whether it is in the form of death because of natural calamities or man-made incidents or human incidents, that itself desensitizes you to these kind of incidents. Because anybody in their right mind would have assumed that after December 2012 and what happened with Nirbhaya is, according to me, huge lesson that should have been learned as far as this country is concerned in terms of safety of women. Unfortunately, instances happen even after, in the immediate aftermath of the brutal episode that she was subjected to, and it continued. So there is no running away from the fact that there is an issue of women's safety that needs to be addressed. There is no question of running away from that issue at all. At the same time, giving the impression that India is the rape capital of the world, I think is an extremely unfair way of looking at it. Because it's not supported by uh, statistics. Also. People who always say that there is not enough evidence or data to support this and that have never backed this particular statement with any kind of data. They don't take into account the fact that it's such a huge country and with such a huge population, there is a decent chance that if the latest census is taken, we are perhaps number one in terms of population. We may have left China behind. We don't know that yet. Considering that and considering the socioeconomic status of this country and its status as a developing country, we need to be very, very careful about making these statements. Because when you make this statement, you give the general impression that culturally there is an attitudinal problem that we have towards women. That is not the case. I don't think that's the case at all. Attitudes have morphed and changed over the years and perhaps not for the best but to uh, tar the entire country and its culture may be seriously problematic. Be that as it may, I do believe the one thing that India has to do, regardless of what the world thinks of it and regardless of who says what about it, but for the right reasons because we have a duty to protect everyone, especially the women, because this is a society that has always respected women and it is believed that the true respect that you give to a society is based on the respect that it gives to its women and the dignity that it accords to its women. So that's the artistic. Yes. There are various institutions like, say, the legislature, the executive, the judiciary, and there are various human rights institutions that we have created in the last two decades or so. Starting with the legislature, many a time we have found that legislature has not reacted to a situation to address certain problems, say sexual harassment at workplace. It was the judiciary which took the initiative in 1997. It was the Supreme Court which issued guidelines. And then the central law enacted by parliament came only in 2013. So how is it that the legislature at times they fail to act when it's actually needed and there is a gap. The state is only a part of the society. It is not the society in itself. And the issue reaches, let's say, the realm of the state only after the society has effectively given up on any self-correcting mechanisms. That is when you invoke the clause of a social contract where you then ask the state to do something about it. So the problem is less with, let's say, the judiciary or any other arm of the state, but more with how is it that we approach and perceive these issues. The fundamental problem, according to me, is in education, is in family structures, is in values that are taught in the house, and that's exactly what we need to address. The state cannot do anything about these things. The legislature, the executive, and the judiciary cannot do anything about these things. They can only create mechanisms to deter something in terms of a legal sanction. But to change a mindset through a legal mechanism is almost impossible beyond the stage. So the focus should be on falling back on the roots of this particular civilization and strengthening family bonds and teaching people that respecting women is at the heart of this culture's identity and that needs to come back. The legislature's slow reaction, I do agree, is a problem. But the starting point of the discussion becomes the reaction of the state. Then we are forgetting that 95% of the society outside of the discussion. So what you are saying is the primary responsibility lies with the family system and yes. the society. Yes. The state has a responsibility and it must discharge its responsibility, but that comes later. 
taking it forward, you talked about education. The entire education system, the way we impart it and uh, it's focused on examination, competition and acquiring some status and some jobs. How important is the values that we impart? Education without human values is merely utilitarian. It is only skilling a person in the sense you give certain set of skill sets. But beyond that, can you truly call it education? I am really doubtful. Coupled with the fact that when children and everybody is being exposed to so many, let's say, influences from social media, from movies and whatnot, there needs to be a filter so that they can think on their own as to what is right and what is wrong because people can't guide them every time. Parents can't do it always. So for somebody to grow that filter, it takes a lot of training in the formative years. It takes a lot of education in the formative years, both at home as well as in the school. So unless and until you strengthen these mechanisms, you will effectively normalize a certain level of desensitization for instance, sex education you run away from and you make it as pixelated as possible. And students or let's say children end up getting an idea of sex from the worst of sources possible without understanding what kind of responsibility is associated with that particular act. You may or you may not believe in free love and all that, but there is a certain responsibility that you owe to that person, that dignity. It goes back to the fundamental question of respecting the other person's choice, respecting a no as a no. There is very little that the law can do. It has to ultimately go back to what the family says. So in this context, the role of civil society, the role of media, how do you see the role of these two institutions? Civil society has largely become a society which is associated with a lot of publicity coming from actions in court or elsewhere. And I don't want to generalize the good work of a lot of people. There are so many organizations which are doing a lot. Unfortunately, the visibility that these organizations which are doing the truly good work is less and the ones who are constantly in the news are the ones for all the wrong reasons. Is it because of the shift, not just in India, across the globe, there was a time when the society was duty-based society. Now we are heading towards rights-based society. Everybody is emphasizing on rights without uh, telling people what their duties are. My generation at least is going to witness the last gasp of a rights-based society because we would have realized it's utter futility and it's skewed uh, debate or discourse and we would be forced to make a turn to a duty-based society. The constitution, now we have a chapter on fundamental duties also, maybe that was an attempt towards that. But the role of media, how do you see? The way media projects issues relating to human rights, is that correct or it needs some sort of correction? Media discussions are largely, I think, based on what is politically correct and what is politically incorrect. And I don't wish to give any credit to the media beyond a certain point. They are responsible for highlighting certain things which may be brushed under the carpet had it not been for the media. To that extent, I will certainly welcome the media's role. But beyond that, can media really shape and influence opinions when they are actually after TRPs and whatnot? I don't think so. So what we are suggesting is media is informing people when it comes to educating people or when it comes to setting the agenda for debate in the society, they are lacking. They need to focus on that. One of the issues regarding the NHRC itself, the NHRC has been there since 1993 and uh, it has done uh, lots of work in various fields, prison reforms, issued guidelines on encounter killings. But uh, the NHRC chairperson, Justice H.L. Dattu, sometime back, he said, NHRC is a toothless tiger. Do you think it needs to be given much more power? Because what we see generally is that NHRC has taken so much cognizance, issued notice, there is a widget, there is some inquiry and then there is a recommendation 
to pay some compensation do you think nhrc needs to be given much more power i would like to answer that in a slightly more nuanced fashion which is to basically say we must identify the extent and limits of the nhrc's power and its ability to look into issues and to discharge its mandate it must have teeth but the nhrc perhaps may also need to identify the limits of its mandate to some extent particularly when it comes to the kind of comments which are being passed with respect to people in duty be it the policemen or be it people in the armed forces because they deal in extraordinary circumstances none of us who are actually cocooned in perfumed air conditioned atmospheres are ever in a position to relate to what these people go through so there perhaps there needs to be a reality check in the kind of standards that we apply that is something that i would certainly recommend nhrc in the last 26 years it has taken cognizance of over 18 lakh cases of human rights violation across india and uh, ordered payment of 180 crore rupees as compensation in various cases during 2019-20 it received 48395 complaints and this year also it has already received several thousand complaints do you think the way it handles things that needs some sort of change i think this concept of having a commission as opposed to a court or a tribunal is itself a limbo situation it might help to actually decide and flesh out truly what is the character of this particular creature calling it a commission does not give it the same level of deterrence as a court or a tribunal and it ends up making sound very very informal no wonder it is so toothless so perhaps you may want to retain the idea but recast the manner in which it conducts itself and the way it is perceived by people by elevating the status of the particular commission to a proper tribunal a human rights tribunal thereby ensuring that certain elevated or enhanced crimes against humanity are adjudicated upon by the nhrc which also has a separate investigation wing so those classes of offenses or those classes of complaints can be entirely relegated to this particular organization that is something that could be considered thank you You were listening to a discussion on promotion and protection of human rights. The participants were J. Sai Deepak, legal expert, and Satya Prakash, journalist. This program was produced and presented by the News Services Division of All India Radio. This program is also available on our website, newsonair.com. You can also follow us on the News on AIR app for updates. You may email your opinion about this program at airnsdtalks@gmail.com.